before Sheila goes away, for clarity, all right, on this who your thumb in the door thing, we were coming back from my son Tyler's house. We'd been doing some work there on Friday evening, and I was beginning to speak to Sheila about something else, and she got ready to try to catch the door, but it was already being shut so much that it didn't, she couldn't catch it, and they got her thumb then in the door and kind of jammed it in there. No, 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 no. I was getting out on the other side, okay? But here's the thing. I mean, when she started screaming and yelling, I'm thinking, first of all, first I heard a dog. And I'm thinking, some dog's after her. What's going on? And so I tried to hurry around the truck, but then later realized all she had to do was take her left hand and open it. It wasn't locked. But she didn't realize that at the time. So I told the rest of the story, Sheila. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, hey, we're going to let that rest, and we're going to turn today to Philippians chapter 2. We continue our series we have. We're in the midst now into the third week of four. We have one more next week, where we're taking a bit of an unusual approach to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the birth of our king, which occurs in, if I get my math right, 12 more days. Right, Kayla and Josh? Yep, I know. 12 more days till Christmas. Okay. But in that particular time, we're celebrating, getting ready for the celebration of the birth of our Lord. And we're looking at unusual characteristics that truly makes, it's an extraordinary day anyway with the birth of our Savior. But we're looking at special characteristics that truly makes that day unique and very special for the birth of our one and only Jesus Christ, our Savior of the world. So we've been looking at characteristics. The first week, you may remember, we looked at perfection. He is the model of perfection. He is the example for all of us to follow. He is perfect in every possible way. Last week, we looked into Colossians, and we found that he is supreme, that Jesus is supreme. He is above all things. He is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 had told us. He is in complete control. He holds all things together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the church. So we talked about perfection and supremacy. And today we shift then to another characteristic, which is his humility. It's our third of the four characteristics we find to admire about our Lord. Today, again, is humility. So I thought, well, before we actually read the text from Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11, let us first look at a definition of humility. And here is a secular, worldly definition of humility. You see behind me, it is this. Humility is defined as a modest or low view of one's own importance. Or another definition would be freedom from pride or arrogance. Now as you see that and you begin to think about that definition of humility, that's not really a bad definition of humility. I mean, I can think of many different people throughout our country, throughout this world, particularly people who are businessmen or politicians or entertainment, such as football, basketball, or even the movies, that really need to follow this practice. They should think less of themselves, perhaps a lower view, and they need to be free from pride and arrogance. I can think of a lot of people that would apply to, that need to follow this. But we're really not so much concerned about the secular definition because it's a little bit different that we need to focus on from a biblical perspective or from a biblical view. So here's what we're going to focus on today when it comes to humility. In contrast to the secular definition, we're going to find that humility is a Christian virtue. 
an attitude of mind which focuses on service to others rather than following the ego. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that is Jesus. When you really stop to think about who personifies, who models humility, there's no better example, really, than the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the model of humility. Now, he truly focused on others and their needs, not on his own. And he did this up to the point of even dying on the cross, which is we find the most humiliating death that a person could ever face. Let us read the words today from Paul as he writes this letter to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi. We'll find that he's going to lead them and encourage them to follow Christ's example of humility. Let us read the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Stand with me. If you're able to do so, as they simply honor the word by standing in attention. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, reads this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the former God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, Father, we do come before you now, Lord, thanking you for the reading of the word. And we ask for today, Lord, a blessing to certainly be upon this reading. Lord, today we turn our attention to another wonderful attribute that our Lord Jesus seems to possess. Lord, we turn our attention to humility. And as we follow then, Lord, the text today to lead us into what Paul was suggesting and encouraging his readers to have about humility, I pray that we would heed this message and thereby become more humble, even ourselves, and follow the example of Christ in our lives. So let us be thankful then, Lord, for what's going to happen here today. We ask that you lead and guide and anoint this time we're together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, I realize it's probably that you are familiar with this text that we read today from Philippians chapter 2 in verses 1 through 11. The verses in chapter 2 is often described as a Christology, which is essentially, if you take those words and divide them up, Christology basically means it's a study of Christ. But more specifically, a Christology concerns Jesus becoming a man. He was fully man but at the same time was still divine. He was also fully God. 
So it takes that plus the role he plays in salvation and conducts a study. So in short, Christology is the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I bring that to your attention because I want you to realize that in the text we read today that Paul was writing to the church in Philippi in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 11, and maybe even more particularly in verses 5 through 8, it is a wonderfully rich summation of Jesus Christ as a person and as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John MacArthur actually describes the passage in this way. He says, it is a magnificent passage that describes Christ's humiliation and exaltation. It contains some of the most profound and crucial teaching on the Lord Jesus Christ in all the Bible. Well, that is absolutely correct. But one more item of interest before we go back to the text is that many scholars suggest it was part of an early hymn in the church. F.F. Bruce observes, that the NIV translation particularly prints these verses in poetical form that reflects the widespread recognition that here we have an early Christian hymn in honor of Christ. And Christ truly should be honored each and every day. But if not each and every day we honor and praise and worship Christ, it's certainly this time of the year he deserves to receive such praise and honor and glory. Because we need to recognize his birth, but then also recognize through his birth, he sacrificed his very life for all of mankind. We've already established that he sets the example of perfection for every one of us. We've already also established the fact that he is supreme, the image of the invisible God. He holds all things together. He is the head of the church. And now we establish today that he is the absolute model of humility. He is the one that we should imitate in our lives as followers of Christ. Yes, we all need to be more like Christ. We're much like the world, but we need to be more like Christ, which means this, our first application point, that if we want to be like Jesus, and we all should, then we must learn to walk in the humility of Jesus. Now, I absolutely love the way that Paul begins this portion of the letter. He's in the second chapter. Of course, there was no chapters or verse numbers in the original manuscripts. But in the English language, we see he began in the second portion of his letter. And I love the way he writes. I mean, admittedly, we don't have the luxury. I mean, if Paul was here, he could speak and tell us, as I'm speaking to you now, about how he wants all this to be conveyed. So we don't have the luxury of hearing him speak. But the way that I read this text in Philippians chapter 2 is that I find Paul, who often at times was rather direct. I mean, he, he often would write to churches in an emphatic rebuke and challenging them, encouraging them to do certain things and being very direct in that manner. But the way I read this portion of the second chapter in the letter to the Philippians is I find him maybe just a little softer, maybe not direct. Not that emphatic rebuke that we find in Paul's other letters. I mean, it's like he's trying to encourage him to practice some humility and maybe exercises some of that of his own and maybe has a softer tone. So allow me then to read again verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read a different translation. I'm going to read the message, which is a paraphrase from Gene Peterson. But allow me to tell you or speak to you in the way I think Paul is presenting 
and encouraging his readers to practice humility. In chapter 2, verse 1, the message says it this way. Paul speaking more softer to his audience. If you have gotten anything, anything at all, out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in the community of spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, well, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. I picture Paul speaking in that particular way where he is softer, quieter, trying to communicate for them all practice humility, not in that direct, sharp rebuke that we often find Paul doing. I mean, I don't see Paul, perhaps I'm wrong, but I don't see Paul saying, don't push your way to the front. Do you hear me? I don't see him being that direct at this moment. I see him more quieter, softer, trying to convey a message to encourage them to practice some humility. So basically what I'm saying is in short, Paul, which, whichever way you may think he's saying it, whether it's direct or maybe that softer, quieter version, he is encouraging his readers to be like Jesus, to practice humility, consider others better than yourself, and to put them first. That is the essence of particularly verse 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, look out for the others. Look out for their interests, not just your own. He's encouraging them in what I believe is softer tone to have them to practice humility and be just like Jesus. And why would he want them to be like Jesus? Because there is no better person in the history of this world that modeled humility better than Jesus. Nobody, nobody models humility like Jesus. You say, oh, wait a minute. I mean, Mother Teresa, I mean, she was pretty good at that. Yeah, maybe she was. But no one, no one, absolutely no one models humility like Jesus. But when you think about it, Jesus was truly humble. I mean, perhaps that was his most outstanding characteristic. We've done three now. To dally today, we've done three characteristics unique to Jesus. His perfection, his supremacy, and now we see the fact that he is humble. So maybe his humility is his most outstanding characteristic. Why would I mention that? Why would I say that? Because I note here that Jesus didn't become humble. He didn't evolve from some point in life to having a spirit of humility. I mean, he was born humble. I mean, think about his birth. I mean, here we are 12 days away to celebrate the day that we believe, that we celebrate, set aside for Jesus' birth. And we, and we know then, we know the facts. We're not reviewing them right now. I mean, we have got a different approach to prepare our hearts for Christmas. But we know the facts pertaining to his birth, like it mentions in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. That he was born in the manger. He was born among the sheep and the oxen. That he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. We know this. 
But think about that. As we notice, I mean, what an incredible way to come into the world. Do you know anybody else that's come into the world in this fashion, this way? I mean, John gets close because he's older than dirt. But for most of us, we're born in a hospital. It is drastically different. I know I pick on John a lot. But we don't come into the world in the way that Jesus did. Born in a manger with the sheep and the oxen. It's just not that way. I mean, compare that birth to our birth. I mean, most of us come into the world with a celebration that now starts. Okay, it didn't happen when I was younger. But nowadays, there is a celebration that when the woman begins to learn that she is with child, the celebration begins at that moment. They have these gender reveal parties. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, when my parents were younger, they thought, well, if it's a boy or a girl, whatever's going to be, we're going to be fine. Okay? With Ken, we just wanted something different. And we got it. Okay? But they, we have gender reveal parties now. And have you noticed the way in which the unusual methods exist in which people now begin to celebrate early upon the, the, the time they learn that there's going to be a child, the celebration begins at that moment. Have you noticed the way they have these re, uh, reveal parties? I mean, I got on the Internet because I was curious, preparing for it this morning. So I thought, I'll just look at some of these ideas. I've seen plenty on Facebook before. But I thought, I'll find out some of the ideas about how we're having these gender reveal parties. And there is some that's quite common. I mean, Pinterest lists thousands of different ways when you can have a gender reveal party. And some of those you've probably been seen before. I mean, things like pink or blue balloons. You know, whichever ones get released, you know, the pink or the blue. Of course, pink for girl, blue for boys. Whichever one gets released, that's what the birth is going to be. So we know. Pretty common. Also, we seem to have confetti. Pretty common. You get pink or blue. Do we have pink or blue cake? That seems to be something pretty common as well. Do we have the powder smoke, sometimes shot out of a cannon? Again, pink or blue. Somewhat common. But then Pinterest also has some more creative ideas, like the ones I hadn't seen. Maybe you have, but I hadn't seen these. One was the man eats a blue ice cream cone, the girl, the woman eats a pink ice cream cone. Whichever one is eaten first, that's the one they're going to have. Pink be the girl, blue be the boy. That's a little more creative. Another one was this. They have a foot race. One is dressed up, the woman in pink. The guy is dressed up in blue. Whoever wins the foot race, that's the gender of the, boy, of the, of the baby. And then we had another idea. Bubble gum. I seen Isaac had some bubble gum. So Isaac, blow a bubble for us, will you? Let's find out if it's pink or blue. Oh, look what color it is. It's pink. So if Roger had some blue, we would have this bubble to be emerging from them. And all of a sudden, the one that would pop would be the one in which they're going to have a boy or girl. Isn't that wonderful that we have those gender reveal parties and all these creative ideas to be able to identify the birth of the babies about to be born into the world? I mean, the point is this. A baby's birth in our world today is often associated with all the pomp and celebration and whatever. But Jesus? I mean, as far as I know, I've read the scriptures in Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 with the birth of our Lord. 
And I didn't see Mary having any powder being shot out of a cannon. I didn't see any confetti that she had. I didn't see ice cream that she was eating. So as far as I could see, there wasn't such revelation of Jesus coming into the world of being pink or blue. But the point is that Jesus came into the world in the most quiet, humbling manner possible. He didn't become humble. He was born humble. He came so quietly in the world that a commoner in Bethlehem wouldn't have even noticed that it happened. But for Jesus, as we consider his humility, it wasn't just his birth that demonstrates his humility. No, his entire life displayed humility. I mean, I thought of several different scenarios and several different examples throughout the scriptures that would help solidify the point that Jesus in his entire life modeled humility. But I couldn't hardly narrow it down to one, so I thought I had to, so here's the one I chose. And you may recall and may immediately think of the one I'm referring to, and it records in John's Gospel in the 13th chapter of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. If there's ever a humbling moment besides the birth of our Lord, and besides what Paul was referring to here, it's got to be when he took the moment to become a slave and washed the disciples' feet. And if you know the account, you know John chapter 13, the gospel reveals that the disciples were simply reclining at the table. I mean, they're having that last Passover meal. I mean, they're all around the table reclining. They're, they're shamefully dirty feet everywhere behind them. And, and it's, I mean, the, the meal's in process. As the meal's in process, we also know, and we've learned from the Passover, that there's this tension in the air about the would-be betrayer. But as all this is happening, suddenly, suddenly all the disciples gathered together become very aware that Jesus had risen from the supper and was standing then apart from them. They observe, they watch, and he removes his outer garment. And they see then that he next took a towel and wrapped it around his body. But then he then poured water into a basin and began slowly to move around the circle, one disciple after the other, washing them dirty feet, wiping them with the towel in which he had wrapped himself. I'm sure it was a very breathtaking moment for all of them. The Jewish Midrash taught that no Hebrew, not even a slave, could be commanded to wash one person's feet. Yet Jesus did it in the most humble way possible, clothed in the servant's towel. Kent Hughes helps capture the moment when he says, In the breathless silence of the upper room, the apostles heard the trickle of water as it was poured the friction of the towel as their feet were wiped off, the sound of the master breathing as he moved from one to another, the incarnate son, God himself, had dressed like a servant and washed the feet of his prideful, arrogant creatures. And that is precisely what Jesus offers to each and every one of us. It wasn't just for the disciples. He took the form of a slave. He took the form of a servant for you and for me, which is Paul's point as he continues in verses 5 through 8, that Jesus became nothing 
He became nothing for you and I so that we could be set free. I mean, as remarkable as the illustration is of washing the feet, Paul very quickly now provides the best illustration of Jesus' lifelong humility. The fact that he was in the form of God and Lord himself become nothing to become a servant. I'm not sure that we can truly understand that particular action taken by our Lord. When we really slow down and begin to contemplate it, meditate upon it, think about Jesus being fully God. I mean, he was fully God and fully man. And the action he took, I mean, I don't know that we can fathom that. I mean, the best we can do is try to put ourselves in the moment. Try to put ourselves if we dare, in the shoes of our Lord. And if we then do that, ask yourself this. If you were on a heavenly throne, the most perfect environment you could ever imagine, with everything subject to you, would you ever leave it? I mean, it's the most perfect situation that ever existed in your life. Would you leave that? Would you give all that up for people like me and you or for worse people than me and you? And we're pretty good people. Jesus did this. Now, if we put ourselves in that situation the best that we can to see if we would ever leave the most perfect situation, a heavenly realm to come to lower ourselves to become man on earth like Jesus did. If we ever considered that, then maybe, maybe we could consider that we might do that. Maybe for certain special members of our family. I mean, I look at you and I see plenty of people looking right back at me that sacrificed a lot for your family, for your children. You sacrifice a lot for them. So we, you know, parents and mothers, that is as close as we can get to ever thinking we believe anything possible in the perfect situation to make some sacrifice for somebody we love. I mean, the, the closest would be parents and mothers. But even again, I, I still think we cannot fathom because we've never had the experience of leaving a heavenly realm, the perfect environment, to become a servant. But that is exactly what Jesus did. For every one of us and for all of mankind. He even did it for the people who curses them. Yes, Jesus, the Savior of the world, of all mankind, who was born, as we described, in a humble manger, who lived a humble life and died a selfless death for every one of us, who also then pursued meekness, he stooped so low for all of us to become like us. But yet he was fully God, as he was also man. Paul uses the best illustration possible for us to understand the depth, the extent of the humility of Jesus. As I was preparing for today, I was reading many different articles. I come across one in Christianity today that spoke of Jesus and his humility. I mean, that's our point we're making about his humility. And in fact, now our second application became nothing for all of us. 
But here's what the words from the author, Christianity Today, said. He said, imagine if you were God. That's hard to do. But imagine if you were God, equal with the Father, sharing glory with him, having every privilege of being And then you became a man and laid aside all those privileges. As we had found in Colossians 1.15, is the image of invisible God. He said, but imagine becoming a servant of all and being God hidden in the obscurity of humanity. Now, I know I'm being a bit redundant, but I really don't think that we can fathom making that type of sacrifice. I don't know that we have that capacity to have humility in the extent that Jesus did as he left the heavenly throne to become man and live among us. I don't know we can fathom, could understand truly the action our Lord took. So as I'm thinking about that, I, I thought of this next. I thought, well, let's just take a time out. And for all of us for a moment, don't shout it out, but think of the person that you think is the most humble you know. Who is the most humble person that you know? And then think about what makes that person humble. Think about them. Who is the most humble person you know? And hopefully you're thinking of someone. And then what makes that person humble? Just think about it for a minute. And then think of this. Whoever that is, even the most humble person occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally, still likes to receive a compliment. It's just our human nature. We occasionally seek praise. Because praise, somehow, some way, just makes us feel good and helps us feel appreciated. I recently started watching Last Man Standing. You know, Tim, the two-man Taylor back in the day, now he's Michael Baxter. And he's got a wife, Vanessa, who plays on the show. In the first season, which I just now get introduced to, I see that Vanessa is doing a lot of good things. I mean, she's had some charitable contributions. She's had all kinds of different things she's done to help people who are in need. And they get to the point where we're going to have a volunteer of the year award. So she says, nah. They ask her if she'd be interested. You know, her humility is kicking in. She says, nah, I just do this for the people who need it. But then Vanessa can't stand it. As Mike begins to play on the emotions, he said, you mean you really wouldn't like to get recognized for being a volunteer of the year? Of course, she can't stand it. She says, oh, yeah, 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 I like that. But it's just like that for us. That we would do things, even the person that you're admiring the most will do things just to be able to help humanity. And we'll have some humbleness. We do all kinds of great outreach here at this church. Wonderful things. We see people come in in tremendous need. The baby shower. We didn't go do Thanksgiving this year. We did Christmas. I mean, there's a lot of need everywhere out there. And we humbly give to them people. We really don't seek any recognition from that. But in our lives, we can't help because we're human and because of that nature that exists we occasionally, somehow, some way, as individuals, like to see a little bit of reward or praise or just some sort of compliment. But the point is we're making is Jesus, he's the model of humility. He did not seek any rewards. He did not seek any compliments. Think for a moment about all the miracles that you know Jesus did. The scripture is full of them. But just think about a few of them. 
I mean, we know he restored the vision of a man born blind. He equipped the lame to walk again. He healed people of diseases like of leprosy. I heard once he had a man to be raised from the dead. I mean, there was many more things that Jesus did. Think of all the miracles that occurred throughout the scriptures, written in the gospel. But as you're thinking about the miracle, think about this. When the miracle was done, did Jesus ever say to the blind man or to the leper, after he had healed them, after he gave them a sight, did he ever say, now listen, I just did that for you. I want you to go out and tell everybody out there it was me. I did it. I did it. Jesus did it. No one else did it. Certainly not that enemy of ours, Satan, the devil. No one can do that. I did it. Tell them it was me. Make sure you spell my name right. J-E-S-U-S. And pronounce it right. It's not Jesus. It is Jesus. Do you ever find a moment in which Jesus had had a miracle and then he went out and immediately sought recognition from doing it to get the compliment or the reward? And some of you may know the scriptures say, wait a minute, Pastor, you're forgetting one. You're forgetting that there was a moment. There was a moment when Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. And subsequently, he told the man, go tell other people. And I heard about that. It didn't happen. Okay, that's somewhat true. But you must remember the man who was demon-possessed wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus healed him, rebuked all the demons from him, and the man wanted to follow Jesus wherever he was going. So here's what Jesus told him. Luke chapter 8, verse 39. He told him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. You see it behind me? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So in that, do you see, do you hear Jesus taking the glory for the healing? Did he seek the praise? Did he take the credit? Or does he give praise to the Father? He gives it to God. Again, the point is, Jesus is the model of humility. He never goes out to seek praise and compliments and rewards. So Paul was now telling us as we get to this portion of the letter that Jesus had equal status with God, but yet did not think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Now that is being truly humble. That is the model of humility. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as remarkable as that role of becoming a man and leaving the heavenly throne, the role of a slave, washing the feet, arguably then once more, Paul goes further to maybe now, I know I said it once, but maybe now give us the best illustration of the humility of Christ as very quickly in verse 8 he refers to our Lord dying on the cross and being found in human form he Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross yeah Jesus humility was expressed most when he became a man and died on the cross the cross was a tremendous death. 
It was a lot to bear. It was the most humiliating death that was commonly reserved for the worst offenders. In fact, humanity had not created a more degrading or loathsome experience than death on a cross. It was so loathsome, it was so degrading that in Roman political society, to mention the word cross was an obscenity. It was obscene to even voice the word cross in Roman language. It was horrible. Death on the cross was humiliating. No, I probably don't need to offer the details of the particular last day of our Lord. And I'm sure you've heard it countless of times about the beating that he endured, the mocking, all the ridicule, the nails in his wrist, in his feet, the blood that was shed for the guilty. He was perfect. He was no criminal. He was perfect. But he took that beating, he took those nails, he shed that blood for you and me and all of mankind. Mel Gibson arguably maybe portrayed best the scenario in the movie called The Passion of the Christ. I actually own that movie, but I've only been able to watch it twice because when they start to show the scene, With Jesus being nailed to the cross, he's just more than I can watch. So I either turn it off or walk away. I've only watched it twice. Because the scene just seems to be so real. I mean, I cannot imagine being present for such abuse. But then it helps me, as I reflect upon it, it helps me begin to understand the extent of the sacrifice. Because now I know that the greatest act of humility that anyone has ever seen in the history of the world, particularly expended to me and to you, has come from Jesus. That is the greatest act of humility of any person in the history of this world. The fact that they would take our place on that cross and die for you and me is a great action and demonstration of humility. And it wasn't just for me, it wasn't just for you, it's for everyone. Christ's self-humiliation brought ultimate obedience. That's why Paul can say, by becoming obedient even to the point of death. We know the scriptures, we know that at Gethsemane, Jesus was overcome with grief. Because he knew what his death would entail. He knew that he would take the world's sin upon himself. He knew then that he must propitiate the wrath of God. So then we, we hear, we read the scriptures in Mark 14, 34. He says, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. And yet we know also Jesus was obedient. And he prayed, Father, you're willing to remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He had self-humiliation and it demonstrated his complete obedience. It prompted John Calvin to say this, For by dying in this way, on the cross, the most humiliating death, for dying in this way, 
He was not only covered with ignominy, which is shame and disgrace, in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. It is surely such an example of humility as ought to absurd, absorb the attention of all men. It is impossible to explain it in words suitable to his greatness. Basically what Calvin is saying is that the humblest man who ever lived was Christ himself. He was the God-man. He lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death, a crucifixion. But as Paul presents that to the Philippians, as we receive that today, because of all the obedience in that Christ had, we find further than that God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything else. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It leads then to our final application point, which is that humility is at the foundation of what God is. But he does, and he blesses it forever. In the Gospel of Matthew, he reports that towards the end of Jesus' ministry, an ugly competitive spirit developed among the disciples particularly when James and John and their mother came along and attempted to get Jesus to give them the right position. I mean, the position to be at his right hand upon the death, upon the inheritance of the kingdom. It was an ugly time with the disciples. In fact, Matthew records, Matthew 20, 24, he says, when the other ten had heard it, they were indignant. They were angry at the two brothers for James and John. Harsh words are probably expressed, maybe some angry gestures. I know it would have been been the case if I'd been there. But tempers flared. So Jesus called them all together, and he said this to them. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. As you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Observe here that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. It is the very foundation of what he is, what he does, and then what he blesses. That very fact reminds me of what James says in his epistle in chapter 4, verse 6, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus Christ is the model of humility. We end with something from Alan Hood who says this, the most humbling thing one can do is to look upon how Jesus responded to the suffering and the mistreatment. You know he was abused. You know he was mistreated. He said his whole life 
was ordered around the attribute of meekness. It was his greatest pursuit. From the moment when he was born, the father was contemplating his own humility in the person of his son. Love will be openly displayed as Jesus went lower and lower, displaying his humility. Anyone who truly looks upon the man Christ Jesus and his meekness will be left staring at the great mystery. It's a mystery because we cannot fathom it. How can one so strong be so tender as he stoops so low? Looking upon Jesus is the great sanctifier to areas of pride and anger in the human heart. All that to make sure we understand that Jesus is the model of humility. And then may we, may we receive the reality of the humility that he had in his life. And may that change our lives forever. May we make a commitment here today to leave Crossroads Baptist Church on Sunday, December 13th of 2020, being more like Jesus, to practice somehow, some way, more humility in our lives. It's not anything about us, but all about him. This year, and every year, at this time in December, we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of our king. It should never be about us. What are we going to get? What are we going to receive? Can't wait till Christmas. We can't wait till Christmas because that is the day we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. It's nothing about us. It should all be about him, the one who models humility to the world. Father. Lord, thank you for this message today and the truthfulness that it gives to us. We see another, another wonderfully rich attribute of our Lord. Lord, I pray that we would receive this message in full. We understand the sacrifice made for us and the humility that he possessed and demonstrated to all the world. And that somehow, some way, we would take a small measure of that humility and begin to display that in our lives. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made for all of us. Let us be more like him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.